astray too much. Um, <clears throat> it is an honor and a privilege to bring God's word to you this morning. I, I really don't take this lightly, and I thank Adam for allowing me to, to preach. I'm, uh, I'm not a regular preacher, which you'll find out shortly, but um, I thank you. I'm thankful for the opportunity to bring God's word nonetheless, and uh, especially to this church who I do feel connected to. Um, we support you. We pray for you. And I really consider you as a mission to Lexington um, for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm part of that. I'm a member. I'm with you. And uh, so it's exciting to just stand here and, and do this. Um, well, I was asked um, why the title, The Quest for Best. And as my brother here said, it sounds kind of like Joel Osteen. But <laughs> I promise you, it's not like Joel Osteen. Um, <clears throat> a couple of reasons. One of the benefits for being a, an occasional preacher is, um, one, when they ask you to preach, you usually can preach on whatever you want. And so this text was something that I was personally dealing with at the time I was asked to, uh, to preach here. And the second reason I picked that title is, uh, it just kind of sounds catchy, doesn't it? <laughs> the quest for best. But it has a purpose. And my purpose for that title is really that we live in a society and Lexington, Irmo is no exception to this. We live in a society that is obsessed with finding the best of everything. We live in a culture that's obsessed with this quest for best. You know, we want the best schools, don't we? We want the best homes that we can afford. We want the best cars. We want the best watches, us men. We want phones that take the best pictures so that we can make the best social media post, don't we? I've heard that from my daughters. We also want the best experiences, like adventure travel and adrenaline rush sports. We want the best diets. We want the best workouts. We want the best hair and makeup combinations, don't we? The list literally goes on and on and on. Well, the problem with the quest for best is usually that when we get whatever it is we're seeking, it's never really fully satisfying. As soon as you obtain whatever it is that you're questing for, you find out something's better. Or there's a new iPhone that comes out that's got even better pictures. And what is it? Better and better. The quest for best isn't really inherently wrong. There's nothing wrong with seeking the best. But our desire for it can often get our priorities misplaced. And the same can be said for our Christian faith journeys. You know, uh, this is, we live in an era where there's a church on every corner, it seems like. Uh, the quest for, best, for the best faith experiences uh, have to do with the best church environment. One where the, it's cool and you don't have to suffer with the heat, you know, in August. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> Step on some toes. One with the best music. The best preaching. All these things, we want these things. Um, we're tempted to desire these great benefits, and there's nothing wrong with the benefits, but we're tempted to desire these great things more than we desire God. Through Christ, God has given us himself. He alone is going to satisfy this quest for best. best. The passage today in Isaiah 58 shows us that we have two paths we can take on our quest for such satisfaction. The first path we're going to see is through diligent, faithful, devout 
religious practices, being a good church member, being involved, being in everything. And the second path is a path of rest. And the person who completed this quest for us and who truly, really does satisfy us as the best. Before we get into the scripture, I wanted to give you a little bit of context because I think, uh, especially since you've been in the Gospel of John, I think uh, going back in the Old Testament, especially right in the middle of this great and glorious book of Isaiah, you need to have some context to what we're talking about today. Um, Isaiah prophesied into three periods of Israel's history. He prophesied into the pre-exilic period. And what I mean by exilic is the time where the nation of Israel, if you remember your Bible stories, was hauled off to Babylon for a period of about 70 years. They were conquered, and they were hauled off. This was Judah, actually. And they were hauled off to, the, uh, to, the, to, uh, Babylon, to Babylon for about 70 years, and they dwelt there what was called the exile. So, so Isaiah deals with the pre-period, the intra, or the during period, and the post-period, Okay. The section of scripture that we're dealing with from today is from the post period. So this was the period of time where the people of God had begun to come back to the promised land. The 70 year period was over and the people of God had begun to move back to the land that had been promised to them. Uh, This particular chapter follows uh, the prophecy of rescue from Babylon, which is is found in uh, chapters 40 through 48. It also follows a description of And if you're familiar with Isaiah at all, you're probably familiar with these verses. It follows a description of this servant who would come and lead his people. You hear a lot of that at Christmas. And so so following the sections of Scripture, we see uh, God's people awaiting their final redemption. And they're called to persevere in this time where they're being restored back to their land. Well, it's not perfect. What's happening is pretty unexpected, actually. Uh, they get back to their land. They find themselves uh, in a land where they're racial half-breeds, where there's a lot of discrimination, where they don't realize the amount of uh, difficulty it would be to reintegrate with the people they're living in their land at this time. It was incredibly hard, especially since temple worship and all the practices that they were accustomed to prior to the 70 years were gone. Uh, They had to reinstitute all this. And uh, we see them struggling in this capacity. In this chapter here today, in chapter 58, we see God uh, condemning their half-efforts at approaching him. And then in 59, we see God condemning their sin. And the final chapters of Isaiah have to do with the anointed one and waiting for his blessing on the people. So in many ways, just to kind of give you that background, um, they were living in a very similar age that we live in. They were living in an age where Christ were similar. God had restored them. Christ has come for us. But we're still waiting for that final consummation, that final uh, perfection of God's plan. The people of Israel were waiting for something great and eternal. They were told to be faithful They were told to pray. They were told to do good works and hold on to the promises of God and confidently expect the eternal glory of this new creation that was indeed supposed to be coming. So that's kind of the perspective or the background of where Isaiah is prophesying into. 
Now, just a word, and we're not going to talk much about this. The chapter, if you have an uh, ESV study Bible or a Bible that, that calls this a whole chapter about fasting, so I want to explain to you today I'm not going to really talk about fasting, not directly at least. But fasting in the Old Testament uh, context was uh, an act that was done to assert the reality of God and the imperative of his law. Uh, it was a self-denial that was designed to point us towards God and the sublimity of, the, of his holiness. And there's a link. There's a link between fasting and the absence of work. There's a link between fasting and self-denial. But we should understand that stepping aside from the good gifts of God, denying ourselves of these, and these, the purpose of that is to lay ourselves open to the giver of these gifts. And it's abused, or it was abused and still is, is abused when it becomes a means to acquire merit or to call oneself to God's attention or even to put pressure on God to do what you want him to do. This is an abuse. So we're going to see some of that in this passage as we read it. Um, the practice of fasting actually has grown over the, the course of God's uh, redemptive history. There's only one commandment in the, in the uh, law that, that tells people to fast, and it was on the Day of Atonement. Uh, prior to, and after that, uh, subsequent to the exile, the people returning, many fasts were added. By the time that Jesus came along, there were lots of different fasts. So these were things that were created by the religious people of the day. So if you will, let's get into the text. If you would stand, let's read uh, Isaiah chapter 58 together. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sin. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They asked me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted? And you see it not. Why have we humbled ourselves, and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure, and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel, and to fight, and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is, is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. 
If you take away the yoke from your midst, midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we need you for this time around your word. Uh, This is uh, a glorious piece of Hebrew literature, Lord, and we just thankful for the promises contained in this. I just ask for your spirit, Lord, to now be with us, to teach us, to open our eyes to what you would say to us today individually. And Lord, may it be something more than just an academic exercise. May it be something that goes down deep into the heart of every person sitting in this room and conforms us more and more into your image for your purposes and for your glory. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. Well, as I mentioned, I felt like that this chapter of Isaiah really presents us with a three-stage guide or map, if you will, in this true quest for best. We want the real thing, right? So he presents us with a three-fold map to find that. Beginning with the first five verses, one through five, uh, what true de- he tells us what true devotion to God is not. He tells us what true de- devotion to God is not. Then in verses 6 through 12, Isaiah presents how God is to be served uh, truly. And then finally, in the last two verses, 13 and 14, he provides us with the means by which we will come to God in faithful, devoted, God-pleasing worship. Let's look at verses 1 through 5. Religious practices actually, according to these verses, may deceive us, may deceive us into thinking that we're devoted to God, according to these verses. Look at verse 1. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. The religious practices of humbling oneself and fasting in the time of Isaiah were actually good things. They were good signs because their intent was to point the people to something greater, to point them to a promised Messiah, a promised solution that was greater than these temporary things that they were surrounding themselves with. However, Isaiah cries out against their idolatry because their practices had become substitutes for true heart devotion. 
The practice of fasting was also used by some to even divert attention away from the fact that they needed God. We're going to see that even more. Look at verse 2. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask, me a, they ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Their deception was so deep, according to this passage, that they actually believed that they were close to God. They actually believed they were close to God, but God is condemning them through Isaiah. So that begs a question. What things do we do to feel close to God? You understand these carefully chosen words. What things do we do, what religious practices do we do to feel close to God? And the point is, in our day and time, our feelings can be deceptive. They can deceive us into thinking that we are close to God when we're not. We live in a culture that thrives, that desires the passion and the emotion of religion. But we can be deceived, even with that, into not being close to God. He further goes on in verse 3 to see that we are manipulating God. He says, Why have we fasted, and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves, and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all of your workers. You know, heartless religious practices can actually become an attempt to manipulate God. And in that day and time, in that region, that's what they did. That's what the religious people in that region where the Israelites came back to were doing. They were trying to manipulate God by doing certain religious practices so that he would bless them. Do we not do the same? We're often tempted to. In verse 4 then, fasting actually becomes a means of oppression, it tells us. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. A fasting that's without true devotion to God actually became oppressive and actually became a form of bondage. Imagine for, yourself, for, for a minute, if you were a religious observer of the time and you, you and your family were fasting all day long and you were doing it outside of the, the grace of, of God, doing it to be seen, doing it to to try to manipulate God. Imagine how grumpy you would be without food all day long. So this is what's happening to these people. They're grumpy, they're angry. It says they actually struck each other, um, and they oppressed each other. Uh, and that's what was going on with their faithless fasting. And then lastly, in verse 5, he re- God openly rejects this kind of devotion. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself, Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Well, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Sounds pretty good. They're bowing down. They're humbling themselves. Isn't this good stuff? Of course it is. But it's religious, outward, uh, heartless worship. It was self-centered and it was manipulative. And it was really... It was really just idolatry. Let's just call it what it was. It was outright idolatry. We see Jesus still dealing with this about 700 years later. He tells us in Matthew 6, 
Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The Apostle Paul even further admonishes us later on in Colossians 2 against this empty religious practices when he says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not touch, do not taste, referring to the things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So it may seem that maybe most of us in this room might think, well, I'm not guilty of this self-made religion, but you know, our own sinful hearts fool us into believing that what we do for God will cause him to give us what we desire. We're very often guilty of approaching God this way, in fact. Do you see yourself in this indictment? I know I did. So, we've seen the indictment. It's pretty strong. How can we detect the difference between this heartless religion and an authentic faithfulness towards God? Well, according to this passage, God tests us by our conduct toward other people. We're going to look at verses 6 through 12. And in those verses, we're going to see that compassion for others, in fact, demonstrates our true devotion or our true fast to God. A compassion for others demonstrates this true devotion. What does the Lord desire that demonstrates such true devotion? In a word, in a few words, we're to take care of other people. And there's two ways the passage gives us. Look in verse 6. Is this not the fast, is not this the fast that I choose, to lose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Well, in this verse, what interests me was this term yoke. Okay, what is a yoke? Most of us in, the, in here... Don't, we're not farmers, so we probably, I'm guessing. So we don't really know firsthand what a yoke is, but yokes had lots of purposes. But one of the things they did was that they shackled or restrained. Another thing they did is that they joined together things. So in verses 6, the first thing he says is that we're to loose the bonds. Uh, and, and the bonds here are actually handcuffs of others, of wickedness. Now, what, what is he talking about? maybe loose the bonds of our sinfulness, the sinful uh, slavery, uh, maybe finding freedom in God's law, possibly. We'll talk about that. Next, he says that we're to undo or smash the straps of the yoke. And in this case, the yoke could be treating other humans like animals. One of the, one of the uh, uses of a yoke was to join animals together. And in Isaiah, this term, this yoke term, 
refers to sins of oppression primarily. Refers to sins of oppression. So we're to strap, we're to break or smash these types of sins as we see them in our own lives and in others' lives. True fasting consists of undoing these thongs of the yoke and breaking every yoke. Salvation was contingent on removing the yoke of oppression. There's a dignity in all humankind, and we're to recognize that and not to allow humans to be treated as animals. He also says then to let the oppressed free. Literally, let is to send out, to send away the brokenness of other people's lives, to move it away from ourselves. All of us need healing. And lastly, he says to release this yoke. Now, uh, one of the things I thought of, or a couple of things I thought of that we are yoked to in our time are things like the pursuit of uh, athletics, the pursuit of education and the benefits of that. These are all good things, incidentally. The pursuit of technology is our savior. The pursuit of material things. These are things that yoke us in our times. So we are called, according to Isaiah, to break the yoke in our society, beginning with ourselves and our families, uh, to these things and to restore people to their proper freedom. And then immediately in verses 7, verse 7 he says, Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked, naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? So the first, verse 6, talks about more of a societal issues, more of the sins of society, the yoking that happens that causes oppression. And verse 7 is more dealing with immediate needs the physical immediate needs of people around us. He says that we're to share our bread with the hungry. He says we're to bring the homeless poor into our house, to cover the naked, to not hide our flesh from our own family. Now, in Lexington and in Irmo, too, we have some of this, but really there's not a lot of homeless people walking around, um, and most people have plenty to eat. And we have somewhere to send them to, you know, like sharing God's love or licks or somewhere like that when, they, when they're hungry. But I would submit to you that there's a lot more here than just a physical hunger going on. And I think our culture, certainly Lexington, is hungry for things that they need feeding. And we'll talk about that in a minute. The book of James shed some New Testament light on this relationship between true faith and religious works in this familiar chapter, in, uh, familiar verse in chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving him the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So James joins the practices of our faith with the beliefs of our faith. In fact, it really doesn't matter how devoted you are personally to knowing and seeking God privately if you don't demonstrate your devotion to him by serving other people. That's what James is telling us. It doesn't matter how devoted you are privately if you're not serving other people and devoting yourself to that. Let's think of some practical ways maybe to apply these verses. <clears throat> How might the use of your home, for instance, loose the bonds of your neighbors? Well, I thought about a couple things. 
Inviting people into your home is very disarming. It shows a certain level of vulnerability, and that's needed for people to feel comfortable. How can eating a meal together feed others in a way just not pertaining to their stomachs, but pertaining to something bigger than that? Caring through food, as most of you know, caring through food is a very natural and human way to care for other people. So you're just giving a meal, sharing a meal with someone. Well, how are the people in Lexington naked and homeless? As we mentioned, we don't run into much of homeless people probably in Lexington. But nakedness has to do with shame. Are not people shamed here for various reasons? Are they not uh, in broken relationships, broken marriages, wayward children, anxiety and pressure for this quest for best that pressures on them? How about the homeless? Not, not a whole lot of homeless people around here probably. But I submit to you that homelessness could be a restlessness or a lack of place, an anxiousness caused by these things that we mentioned. Well, what about hiding from your own family? Well, first of all, does your family know that you're a Christ follower? And when asked this question, include your church family. Are you vulnerable to each other here at Rivercrest? Do you open up about your struggles in the Christian faith to one another? If we don't, we're hiding from our family. Well, now to the good news. What does the Lord promise will come to us and from us? Look at verse 8. If we do these things, then shall your light break forth, forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. The first thing that happens when we love other people, is that God begins to do something to us, and then he begins to do something through us. It tells us in verse 8 that sudden light and healing will break forth. This same Hebrew word is used in Genesis 7, describing the flood that suddenly came upon the earth. So there's a suddenness to this light and this healing. And this light and healing is for us, for us individually, to restore us, to make a new beginning for us. Now, most of you guys have been to the beach in here because we live close enough to it, so I'll assume that. But probably fewer of you have ever sat out on the beach before the sun rises and watched it come up over the horizon. When you've noticed the sun rising over the, over the ocean, uh, one thing happens. It gets light, a little bit lighter, a little bit lighter, a little bit lighter. And then all of a sudden, just in an instant, the light of the sun's rays penetrates the horizon and shoots across and something special, there's something special about that. This is the same kind of thing that Isaiah is telling us here. This quick restoration, quick health, the light and the healing will come to us as we reach out to other people. And then the second part of that verse, he tells us that his righteousness will go before us and his glory will be our rear guard. The righteousness of God clothes us like armor. So the armor is used to protect us from the front. And God's righteousness is before us, protecting us from the, the attacks of the enemy. And in addition to that, though, he promises to be our rear guard. What's he really saying with all that? You know, he's really saying that he will be our security. He will, he will be our security. We can place our security in his protection if we do these things. 
Let's look at verse 9. In verse 9 it says, Then you shall, be, you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and speaking wickedness, we'll come back to that. This is 9a. Um, God will be near us. He promises to be near. Now how many times in your struggles in life and in your spiritual struggles does God feel, strong, feel a long way away? Uh, I know for me, uh, it's common. Uh, it's, where are you, God? Where, you're not around. You're far away. You're somewhere up in the heavens. Well, he's promising here that he'll be near to us. And then not only that, but if we do the, a few other things, he tells us in the second part of that verse, he's going to give us something even greater. If we take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of your finger, and the speaking wickedness, and if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the, the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. What's he talking about here? Well, in these verses, he's telling us something even, even uh, he's drilling down even deeper in what he's going to give us here by telling us that he's going to give us happiness. He's going to take away this, this gloom. Uh, he's going to allow the light to uh, rise in our own lives if we remove the, the yoke from our midst. Now, what's he talking about this yoke? Now, this is the people of God he's talking to here specifically talking about burdening others with our words. So if we stop burdening others with our words, then he's telling us we will receive happiness. If he tells us to pour ourselves out for the hungry, and remember, there's all different kinds of hunger, we can sacrifice our time and desires for others' care to satisfy this need, to satisfy the hunger. To satisfy the desire of the afflicted, he tells us, Leads others to the, we need to lead others to the only satisfier, that is Jesus. And then what happens? Our light will rise, and our gloom will be as the noonday, it tells us. Now, I'm one of these guys that's sort of a glass-half-empty guy, so uh, I struggle with being encouraged. I struggle with discouragement. And what he's telling us here is that when we take our eyes off ourselves and we serve other people, particularly when we remove these uh, words that, that uh, cause a bondage to fall on other people and satisfy the desire of the afflicted to feed the hungry, all these things, our light will rise in darkness and our gloom will be as the noonday. He's telling us here there's an antidote for discouragement, isn't he? And I think most people have discouragement, discouraging times, but if you think about it, most of that discouragement comes from looking at our own belly buttons to navel-gazing, if you will, for thinking about our own poor situation. But he promises us that we will have personal clarity and that we'll have personal guidance from himself when we do these things. And look at verse 11. <clears throat> in verse 11, the Lord will guide, says, and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters shall, do not fail. What a, what a glorious promise. We have continual guidance from the Lord who will satisfy us in scorched places. He'll make our bones strong. He'll make us like watered gardens, it tells us, and unfailing springs. Now, you probably heard the illustration of the well versus the spring. Now, both are life-giving. A well we get water from, life-giving. A spring we get water from, life-giving. However, a well has to be drawn a spring flows of its own uh, nature. God is promising us here that if we do these things, he will make us unfailing springs. 
and we will bubble out onto the, to our communities, to our families, and we'll become life to them. That's what this is all about. So we've seen how God will restore us by this love for others. Now we're going to see what he does through us uh, as, after working these things in us. He tells us in verse 12, And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. What wonderful metaphors or metaphorical language he's using here in chapter 12 that we are called to be these kind of people. Now he could be talking about the rebuilding of Jerusalem in the immediate context, but I think redemptively for all of us, our goal as Christian believers is recreation, is kingdom work, is making our societies better, is helping one another grow. These are all things that we are promised to do here as, as ruin rebuilders and foundation raisers and repairs of the breach and restorers of the streets to dwell in. This is how God has called us to be after we do these things to take, to take care of our fellow um, human beings. God in these, these couple of verses condemns this false religion that separates the personal devotion and the religious experiences from acts of outward love. He demands a faithfulness that worships and obeys him in all of life. Now, knowing these, his requirements, knowing these requirements that we are to love others as part of our devoted worship, how does God, through Isaiah, help us get there? Well, we're going to see in the last two verses that true religious devotion is actually demonstrated by compassion for others only as we rest our own good works in the completed work of Christ. Christ's Sabbath work rests our works in him. Let's look at 13 and 14. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath the delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Christ has provided a Sabbath rest for us, for our souls, as we're going about his kingdom work. The Sabbath day was never and still is not a day of fasting. It's a day of feasting. So we're not talking about a day here anymore, though, because Christ has come to be our Sabbath. He is so much more. We rest in him and our works. It is the person of Jesus Christ himself who we rest in. Hebrews 4 gives us uh, instructions on that when he says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Religious, religious rituals and faithful church work do not make, does not make God love us more. It doesn't cause him to move closer to us. It doesn't persuade him to do what we want him to do. Christ has satisfied everything we need in himself by fulfilling the holy law for us. And we are now free from all the requirements of the law to labor for him with joy. 
Hearts that are made free from the heavy weight of the law are then made light for the work of the kingdom. Let me say that again. Hearts that are made free from the heavy weight of the law are then made light for the work of the kingdom. The Lord is more interested in, in enjoyment of his blessings than, through obedience than in self-imposed deprivations, according to one commentator. The heart of true religion is to conform to what God has ordained. God wants us to delight in him. He wants us to work, but to work is, is men and women whose debt has been paid. To work is men and women who, whose uh, requirements have been satisfied. Verse 14a tells us that the Sabbath bring, will bring us a delight in the Lord. This is a pathway, the quest, the right path, if you will, to his presence. Uh, the next part of verse 14 tells that God speaks blessings on his people. He says that we will ride on the heights. What does this mean, to ride on the heights? A common terminology is to have confidence in life to be confident that everything has been met in Christ Jesus and that I work to feed the poor, to help the afflicted, to clothe the naked. These are all things that we do in our abundance, not out of duty or obligation. And then he promises a covenant blessing. He says that, the, uh, that he will give the promises of Jacob. He will feed us with the heritage of Jacob. These, this is a direct reference back to the covenant promises that God gave the family of God. These are ours as well. He promises to take care of his people, and he will. So this is the path that leads us forward to the best place. And this is really the only path where the quest for best is going to be fully satisfied. John Bloom of Desiring God Ministries summarizes this by writing, the most loving thing we can do for others is to love God more than we love them. For if we love God most, we will love others best. But how can you really love someone best by, by loving someone else most? Well, if those of us who have encountered the living Christ really understand this. We know that the depth of love and breadth of grace that flows out from them towards others when they themselves are filled with a love for God and all that he, he is for them and means to them in Jesus they know what this means. And they also know the comparatively shallow and narrow love they feel towards others when their affection for God is ebbing. Well, there's a reason why Jesus said the second great commandment is like the first in Matthew 22. If we love God with all our heart, we will love our neighbors as ourselves. It functions like faith and works. If we truly have the first, that is faith, the second works naturally follows, doesn't it? If God is not the love of our life, there's no way we'll truly love our neighbors as ourselves, for we will love ourselves instead supremely. Have you checked your heart lately? Have you checked your heart lately? Do you love God more than you love the things of this world? Do you love yourself more than you love others? It's a constant fight for repentance. See, the way for Rivercrest to be an unfailing spring in this spiritually scorched place of Lexington, to be a repairer of the breached walls of broken lives around us, to be restorers of the streets 
of God's goodness in this community to raise up the foundations for generations is by desiring more of Jesus than anything else this world has to offer. It's by seeking to bow ourselves before God every day, believing that he has accomplished for us all, all that we truly need. And then it's submitting ourselves in obedience with joy to loving those around us. This is the only way, truly the only way, to satisfy our relentless desire and our relentless quest for the best in this life. Are you resting in the quest for best by trusting that Jesus Christ has met all of your needs? Are you doing that today? If not, come talk to somebody. Come hear of the great work of Jesus Christ and what he's done for everybody who, who believes in him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are truly wonderful. You have provided us a way, Lord, where we can rest in you. We can cease our striving. We can place our works for you inside the category that you've already satisfied everything, Lord. And you can't like us any less than you already love us. Lord, everything's been done. Everything's been satisfied in the work of Jesus Christ. The works that we bring you now, Lord, are, are strictly from love. Let us be springs that are unfailing to those around us. The unfailing nature of yourself, Jesus, let it strengthen us to overflow onto those in this community, to those in this church, and certainly those in our families. We love you, Lord, and we are thankful for giving us a roadmap to find a way to satisfy this quest that we have for the best in Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.